guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? Doing pretty good, thanks. All right, so uh, we don't have anything to really discuss at the beginning of the show this week, so we are going to just get right into this week's episode, and it's a really crazy story, which they always are, I feel like, but this one definitely has some really bizarre elements. And it's just another one of those ones where you're like, wow, like how, how do these kind of things actually happen? So yeah, yeah. (laughs) so we'll get right into it. So when we become parents, most of us have this hope and this expectation that our children will grow into well-rounded adults and become successful and contributing members of society. And we also commonly have hopes for them that include finding happiness in their relationships if they choose to have one. And sometimes we hope for our children to have children of their own one day so that we can experience the joys of grandparenthood. These are the same hopes and dreams that Helen Summers had for her daughter, Michelle. Michelle Marie Summers was born on January 15, 1957, in Orange County, California. Her father, Milton, was gone a lot due to his job as a salesman, so Michelle was raised mostly by her mom, Helen, and her grandmother, who was Helen's mom. Michelle was one of seven children born to her parents, and she had three brothers and three sisters that she was very close with. Growing up, Michelle was a tomboy with a very big heart. She was described as being kind and generous, friendly, helpful, and soft-spoken. She had striking good looks, but she was always down to earth and never came across as pretentious. She was the perfect daughter and excelled at really everything that she did. She was a straight-A student, a cheerleader, and the homecoming queen of her high school. She played the violin and participated in theater as a hobby of hers. In high school, Michelle was an exchange student in Switzerland before she graduated in 1975. Michelle was brought up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and she took the values instilled by the church really to heart. She was devoted to her family and had dreams of attending Brigham Young University, but that plan was derailed when she started modeling in her late teens and early 20s. She eventually participated in four different pageants and won the title of Miss Concord in 1976. Around 1977, Michelle moved to Mission Viejo with her mom. While there, she attended an LDS young adult activity. It was there that she met the man who would change her life forever. Martin McNeil was a charming and attractive young man who had recently moved to the Mission Viejo area and started attending the same LDS church as Michelle. Once the two met, they were really smitten with each other and the relationship took off. Michelle's family wasn't too sure about Martin, and they thought he was insincere and really not the right man for Michelle. But despite her family's hesitation, Michelle and Martin eloped just months later, on February 21st, 1978. Just a few months after the couple were married, though, there were red flags already coming up. While most people would be spending their first few months of marriage just being in love and enjoying every minute of it, Martin had to take a hiatus from the honeymoon phase so that he could serve a jail sentence for a previous check forgery that he was involved in the previous year, which was 1977. He had gone to California with a book of fake checks and went on a little shopping spree in which he wrote $35,000, which is equal to $153,000 today, in bad checks for expensive items including diamond rings, 60 pairs of socks, which I totally could get on board with using fake money to buy socks. (laughs) I love them so much. Couches, watches, bikes, 20 pairs of shoes, televisions, and tires. He was caught and sentenced to six months in jail, and then he was on probation when he was released. The following year, the couple welcomed their first child, a girl named Rachel. During this time, Martin was attempting to further his education, and he was accepted into two medical schools and a law school using false transcripts. He was also accepted at a medical school in Mexico in 1978, which he attended for one semester before transferring to Western University of Health Sciences in California after lying about how long he'd attended school in Mexico. He said he had taken a full year of classes, but in reality, he had only taken one semester. So we can already see here that clearly Martin has no qualms about forging, lying, and cheating his way through life. What Michelle didn't know was that Martin had literally been this way forever. Martin was born on February 1st, 1956 into a very dysfunctional life. His parents, Albert and Lillian, had a volatile relationship and they frequently fought and argued in front of Martin and his five siblings. 
Eventually, his parents divorced when Martin was very young, and his father moved to Long Beach, California, leaving Lillian behind to figure out how to provide for six young children on her own. It was at this point that Lillian turned to sex work to support them all. According to Martin, his mother would bring clients into their apartment and have sex with them with nothing but a sheet separating herself and her client from her young children that were also in the home. Martin says that he grew up in the slums of Camden, New Jersey. By the time he was a teenager, he'd had enough and decided to move to Long Beach to live with his dad. In 1973, Martin lied about his age on an army application and he was accepted into the military at 17 years old. Two years later, he was diagnosed as a latent schizophrenic and he was discharged from the army. It was only following his release from the military that he discovered the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when he was introduced to the faith by missionaries. In his early 20s, Martin attended St. Martin's University in Washington, where he majored in psychology and sociology. He allegedly earned 65 credits from the Army's extension program, but it's likely that he did not actually earn all of the credits he needed to graduate. But nonetheless, he finished his undergraduate degree in 1977 and then moved to Mission Viejo, where his sister Mary lived. As we mentioned, Martin had five siblings, but sadly, all but one of them passed away. Martin's brother Rufus died by suicide in 1986. He was found dead in a bathtub. His sister Alice also died by suicide when she was in her early 20s. Another brother, Albert Jr., suffered from alcoholism and had a stroke when he was 50 years old. He lived for another 20 years before dying in a nursing home. Martin's brother Scott took his own life during Martin's marriage to Michelle, leaving Martin's sister Mary as his only remaining sibling. It was around this time that Martin was caught forging all those checks, and also around this time that he first met Michelle and quickly started a family when their first daughter Rachel was born. In quick succession, the couple had three more biological children, named Alexis, Vanessa, and Damien. Martin continued on his journey through medical school, and in 1984 became a licensed osteopath in the state of California. In 1987, he obtained the same license in Utah. While he was going back to medical school, Martin met with the Army to check on his disability. He lied and said that he wasn't working or going to school, which made him eligible for 50% disability pay. Eventually, however, Martin ended up getting 100% disability pay and 100% pay from Social Security, which he would continue to receive for years to come. In the late 80s, after Martin became the licensed osteopath in Utah, he decided to apply to Brigham Young University's law program. While finishing his law degree, Martin worked part-time at the BYU Health Center. He graduated the law program in 1990, but he didn't go on to practice law. Instead, he continued to work at the University Health Center as a physician. As we said before, the couple was also involved and active in their LDS church, and Martin even taught Sunday school classes. It's amazing to me, this guy was really smart. I mean, he was manipulative, and he stole, and he forged, and all that stuff, but he did a lot of schooling and like could do a lot of things. It's just crazy when you watch somebody kind of have that much knowledge, like brain power, and then they like don't use it for good. It's just yeah, bizarre yeah. to me because it's like, buddy, you could have done whatever you wanted to with all of this knowledge and you're out there bouncing checks for socks, which, you know, I can kind of get. Yeah. <laughs> so as Martin and Michelle's biological children grew, the couple began considering adoption and they eventually adopted four more children, Elle, Sabrina, Ada, and Giselle. The couple told everyone that the four children had been adopted from the Ukraine, but there was a big family secret, and that was that Ada was actually the child of Martin and Michelle's daughter, Vanessa. The couple adopted the baby as their own child and covered up the fact that their daughter had gotten pregnant and had a baby. Martin and Michelle attempted to adopt a fifth Ukrainian child, but the adoption was terminated. Aside from the incident with Martin serving jail time early in the marriage, the relationship with Michelle was riddled with numerous other red flags. Martin quickly revealed a more unstable side of himself. Throughout the couple's entire marriage, Martin would often threaten suicide and he began having multiple affairs despite Michelle's attempts to have a happy life and family with Martin and their children. Over the course of Martin's career as a doctor, he was repeatedly accused of despicable behavior, including rape, unprofessional conduct, and misdiagnosis, which led him to resign from his job in 1998. He didn't stay gone for long, though, and by 1999, he was somehow allowed to go back to work at the same clinic. That's terrifying. 
it is so terrifying whenever, especially because he, the type of accusations that he had right. to think that they would let him go is, you know, great. But then to say, sure, you can come back. Why would you even let him try to come back for a second chance? Not with those types of accusations. Right. Ooh. So within three months, Martin was let go again after he received more complaints about his inappropriate behavior with patients. In 2000, Martin was appointed the medical director of the Utah State Developmental Center by Governor Mike Levitt. He continued working for the development center for seven years. At home, things were always tense and rocky with Martin. In August of 2000, the police were called to the McNeil home after Michelle caught Martin looking at pornography, which led to an argument and Martin threatening to kill himself and Michelle with a knife. Their arguing and screaming was so loud that a neighbor called the police to come check things out. The couple's son, Damien, managed to wrestle the knife away from his father before the police showed up and took him to the Wasatch Mental Health Facility for the night. After this knife incident, things only got worse in the McNeil home. According to Alexis, her father became verbally and mentally abusive towards her mom. He would say he didn't love her anymore, that he didn't want the adopted daughters anymore, and that he wanted to leave the family. In 2006, Martin moved the family from Orem, Utah, to the gated community of Pleasant Grove. At the time of the move, Michelle confided in two of her daughters that she believed Martin wanted to move there in preparation for a divorce. Martin's strange behavior made Michelle suspicious that he was having an affair, and she was right. He'd been having affairs with different women for nearly his entire marriage to Michelle, but the two that are the most important to this story are the affairs that he had with Anna Osborne Walthall and Gypsy Willis. Martin's affair with Anna began in March of 2005, but it quickly fizzled when Anna moved away from the area later that year. Anna will come up again later in the story. In November of 2005, Martin began seeing Gypsy, but their relationship didn't become sexual until January of 2006. Gypsy was actually aware that Martin was married, but seemed unfazed by it. She started seeing Martin a couple of times a month, sometimes just for lunch and sometimes for sex. This arrangement went on for a year, and in March of 2007, Gypsy moved closer to Martin. When she moved, Martin began paying for her living expenses, and he even gave her a debit card to use. There's so much more to get into with this story, and we will get right back to it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I was completely shocked to learn that the average woman uses 12 products with 168 ingredients in her skincare regimen every day, and that doesn't even include the unknown number of toxins. We are so careful about what our family puts on their skin and in their body, so it's important for us to do the same for ourselves. True Botanicals can do just that. True Botanicals is filled with natural and organic ingredients, and their skin and body products will give you the results you're looking for without the toxins. While we want non-toxic products, we also want something that works, and True Botanicals offers solutions that actually work to repair skin issues. I spent most of my life with combination oily and dry skin, but at this point in my life, I have very, very dry skin. I was so excited to try the True Botanicals Pure Radiance Oil, and it's made such a difference in the brightness and feel of my skin. Using that, along with the Moisture Lock Overnight Mask, leaves my skin feeling hydrated, which is something I haven't felt since... Maybe since I got my driver's license many moons ago. True Botanicals worked with researchers at leading universities, including Carnegie Mellon and Cornell, to help identify nourishing botanical extracts rich in vitamins, essential fatty acids, and antioxidants to develop formulas that work better than leading beauty brands. You've just got to try True Botanicals for yourself. Get 15% off your first purchase at truebotanicals.com mm. Get 15% off your first purchase at truebotanicals.com slash mm. Truebotanicals.com slash mm. Games have come a long way since we all played solitaire on our computers, but our need for playing them has not. Best Fiends is the perfect way to itch that game spot we all have. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that becomes even more fun to play the longer I play it. Sometimes when I'm working on episodes of the podcast, my brain decides it needs a little break, and playing a few levels of Best Fiends is the perfect way to zone out for a few minutes before diving back into the story I'm working on. I love that Best Fiends can be played literally anywhere because there's no internet connection needed to play Best Fiends. I'm on level 606 now, and I love that all the levels really build on each other. I've been saving up the keys I've learned along the way, and today I actually use some of them to open up new reward boxes to get more yellow and blue meteorites. 
I was able to upgrade my fiends with the meteorites, and I even earned a cute little yellow one named Newt, who's an area bomb frog and is already helping me out in the game. And if none of what I said makes any sense to you, well, that's because you aren't playing best fiends. Get on there and let us know what level you're on. Kimberly from A Date with Dateline and I are having a friendly competition over on Twitter over Best Fiends, and while I was crushing her for a while, she's now within 100 levels of me, so I have to kick it into overdrive to keep my edge. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about Martin's affairs and that he was having this ongoing affair with this woman named Gypsy. And she had been having this relationship with him for so long that she decided it was time for her to move closer to where Martin lived. And he started paying for her living expenses and letting her have money, access to his money through a debit card. So at this point, Michelle was very suspicious and she started asking Martin more often if he was having an affair. Every time she brought this up, Martin would brush it off and call her ridiculous and completely denied that he was being unfaithful in any way. Meanwhile, Gypsy was absolutely enamored with Martin and she would do anything for him and even talk to her friends about stalking Michelle. She was so desperate for Martin's affection that she began taking methamphetamines to lose weight for him. When Michelle began to question Martin's fidelity, he told Gypsy that they should stop seeing each other for a little while because Michelle was catching on, but Gypsy was not going to go away that easily. According to friends, she began formulating ideas for how to get rid of Michelle for good. She allegedly spoke about the possibility of poisoning Michelle or cutting the brakes on her car. Martin's response to Michelle's suspicion was to deny her accusations and then basically bribe her with a facelift, as one does when their wife is asking them about an affair. It just seems like such a strange thing when your wife is trying to have this serious conversation with you and then you go to her and say, well, let's not talk about that anymore. Let's get you a facelift. Yeah. Let's, let's perk those eyebrows a little bit. Yeah. So he told his wife that she should get this facelift as soon as possible and that he would take her on a cruise after she was all healed up from the surgery. Michelle said that she would rather wait on the facelift because she had some weight that she wanted to lose first, but Martin was insistent that she have this procedure done as soon as possible, and he even called to set up a consultation for her. The first appointment was on March 22nd, 2007. Michelle met with Dr. Scott Thompson, who helped her create a plan to work on her forehead, her midface, and her lower face. The next step was to meet with a physician to be sure that she was in good enough physical health to undergo the surgery. The doctor she consulted with for this portion was named Dr. Welch, and he later said that Michelle was very quiet during this visit and that Martin was doing all the talking and answering all of the questions on Michelle's behalf. It became so strange that the doctor eventually asked Martin to leave the room so that he could speak to Michelle in private. Once Martin was out of the room, Michelle told Dr. Welch that she was very depressed and stressed but she really didn't elaborate. During this consult, Dr. Welch performed an EKG on Michelle, which found no evidence of heart disease, although Michelle did have slightly high blood pressure. Dr. Welch brought Martin back into the room and suggested that Michelle wait until her blood pressure was under control before having the surgery. Martin, however, did not like this suggestion. He was adamant that the facelift needed to happen ASAP, and he pushed forward with the second and final consultation with the plastic surgeon. So side note, I don't even understand how this part happened. I don't understand how the doctor you go to for medical clearance says, hey, your blood pressure is kind of high. You need to get that under control before surgery. And her husband says, "Mm, she's fine. Let's go do this. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it's not just up to you as a patient. Like The doctor does have the final say if they're going to like approve you for this surgery. But it is weird that she got through that after he said no. And then somehow she still ended up going through with it. Yeah. I mean, I know they can offer clearance, but it it puts a lot of pressure on the doctor. And ultimately she could go to the hospital and do um, her own medical clearance right before surgery. And if her, her blood pressure was high and she's not on medication, they could still cancel her. So I don't 
I just don't even understand, especially for a facelift. This is cosmetic. It's not, you know, medical so much. Right. I don't think I'm saying that correctly, but I, you see what, see what I'm saying. It's She doesn't have to have this. He thinks she has to have it, but she doesn't. So I, I don't understand how he was able to do this, except he was a doctor and they thought, well, you know, she's she's in his hands, good hands. I don't understand it at all. This this whole thing just confused the heck out of me. So on April 1st, 2007, Michelle Martin and their daughter Alexis, who was actually a first year medical student at this point, went to Michelle's final appointment. Michelle tried to reason with her husband on the way and said that she'd feel better about having the surgery after she corrected her blood pressure. But Martin got really angry and snapped at Michelle and said, if she doesn't have the surgery now, she can forget about it forever. At the appointment, Martin spoke with Dr. Thompson and once again dominated the conversation. He requested that Michelle's surgeon prescribe more medication than what would typically be given to a facelift patient because, according to him, Michelle didn't handle pain well and would benefit from the additional medicine. Even though it was out of the routine, Dr. Thompson agreed to prescribe the additional medications to Michelle because he knew that Martin was also a physician and would be overseeing her recovery at home and could monitor her consumption. Two days later, on April 3rd, Michelle had her facelift surgery. She had a lower and mid facelift, a forehead lift, and surgery to her upper and lower eyelids. It took eight hours to complete Michelle's surgery, and she spent the first night in the hospital for observation. Since Michelle had such an extensive surgery on her face and had bandages over her eyes, her daughter Alexis was there to care for her when she came home on April 4th. Alexis wanted to be right there for anything her mom needed, and she even suggested that she could sleep in the same room to make it easier to take care of her mom in the middle of the night. But Martin was not going to let that happen. The next day, on April 5th, Alexis went to check on her mom and found that she was actually unresponsive. When she asked her dad what was going on, he told her that he had accidentally over-medicated Michelle, but it wasn't intentional and that she was fine. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not fine. Yeah. Well, it's crazy because he's a doctor. He knows better, better than anyone else giving out this medication, what an appropriate dosage would be. It's on the pill bottle. There's no reason he of all people could screw this up. Right. And but then just to kind of brush it off and like to say like, oh, yeah, she's she's over medicated, but she's fine. And and he's not even really doing anything to fix the situation. I mean, that would be terrifying as a daughter walking into that scene and you're you would just kind of be looking at your dad, who is a doctor, like, okay, so aren't you going to shouldn't we be doing something, you know, to, to get her, you know, woken up again so that, you know, she's not just unresponsive. Right. That's just very strange. The whole thing would be very scary to walk into. Yeah. So a little while later, Michelle finally did wake up and she told Alexis that Martin had given her so many pills that it made her throw up. At this point, Michelle herself was scared that Martin was trying to harm her in some way. So she asked Alexis to place each of her pills in her hand so that she could feel what they felt like. So remember, she can't see. She had this surgery, including surgery on her eyelids and she's got bandages over her eyes. So she was asking her daughter to hand her each pill, tell her what, you know, which one it was. So next time Martin was giving her pills, she'd be able to feel them and know exactly what it was he was giving her and how much she had taken of that, you know, particular one. Can you imagine that you're recovering from surgery and now you have to think, oh my gosh, my husband's trying to kill me. I can't see to even, you know, take care of myself. Now I have to feel pills in my hand to see if If he is actively poisoning me, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's terrifying. So at this time, she also said to Alexis, quote, if anything happens to me, make sure it was not your dad. On April 6th, Michelle had a follow-up appointment with Dr. Thompson. She still couldn't open her eyes yet, but it had just been five days since the surgery, so that was still considered normal. Alexis stayed in town to help take care of her mom for a few more days, but she returned to Nevada to get back to med school on April 10th. The same day, Michelle went back to Dr. Thompson. By this time, Michelle was over a week out from her surgery and she was feeling pretty good. Both she and the doctor were happy with her facelift results and Michelle was healing enough that she had stopped taking most of her medications and she was even able to walk around and take care of herself. It seemed as though that bizarre and scary incident where Martin gave her too many pills was just a fluke and that everything was fine. But things took a sudden turn for the worst on April 11th. 
One of the younger McNeil children was getting ready for school and went into Michelle's room looking for her. Michelle was sitting on the couch watching TV, and she had a normal conversation with her child. At 8.45 that morning, Alexis called from Nevada to check on things. She spoke with her mom, who said she was really doing great, and said that she was even getting back to her normal routine and planned to pick the younger girls up from school later that day. Michelle sounded completely normal, healthy, and in her right frame of mind. Then, just 30 minutes later at 9.15 a.m., Martin called his daughter Alexis and left her a message asking her to please call Michelle and just tell her to stay in bed. Alexis thought this was really weird considering she had just talked to her mom and everything was normal, but she dialed Michelle's number again anyway. Her mom did not answer the phone this time. At some point before 9.15 a.m., Martin left the home and took the younger girls to school and then he headed to a safety fair for the Utah Developmental Center. After spending a few hours at the safety fair, Martin left to pick up six-year-old Ada from kindergarten and took her home. They arrived at the house around 11.30 a.m. Ada went inside and went to find her mom. What she found instead is incredibly tragic and heartbreaking. Ada found Michelle fully clothed in a bathtub of reddish-brown water with a mucus-like substance around her head, which was right above the water. When Martin came into the bathroom, he yelled for Ada to go find a neighbor to help him lift Michelle out of the tub. Ada, who as we said was just six years old, managed to make it to one of the neighbor's homes and she asked Christy Daniels to come for help. Christy went with Ada back to the McNeil home and ran to help Martin, but when Martin saw Christy, he told her that he, quote, needed a man's help and ordered her to go find one. Christy ran back to her home and got her husband Doug to help. While Christy was gone, Martin called 911 three different times. The first time he called 911, he stated that his wife had fallen in the bathtub and that she was unconscious. Martin told the operator that he was a physician, and then he reiterated that his wife was not conscious and that she was underwater. When the dispatcher asked him if he had gotten her out of the tub, he said that he could not lift her, so he drained the tub. Martin was hysterical on the phone and really just screaming all these different things into it. Anytime he gave an address, it was either inaudible or incorrect. He told the paramedics that he was performing CPR already, and he actually hung up on them three different times. In all, it took the paramedics 30 minutes to finally find the McNeil home. So he actually told the paramedics that he was giving her CPR. What he had told the operator was that his wife is in the bathtub still. He drained the water, but then he said, I'm giving her CPR right now. Well, if you think about it like that, like how is he giving her CPR if she's in the bathtub? So already you can see that this is like right. not adding up right from right from the very beginning from the 911 call. Things are really not making a lot of sense. And who hangs up on 911 and who doesn't know their address you know, who can't accurately give their own address and especially a doctor who, and I understand this is your wife and people react sure. differently in different scenarios. Definitely. But as a doctor, he has seen numerous different medical scenarios and you would expect that he would at least be able to coherently give the 911 operator the correct information about what's going on right. and the correct information about where he lives. Like you said, s simple things like that he should have been able to to do without hesitation. Right. And you would think whenever Christy came over, he would just say, okay, let's try because now you've got more time. She has to go back and get her husband. But now there's even more time. You couldn't have even attempted to try and get her out of the water. You know, none of this adds up, especially like you're saying, as him being a medical professional, he's I'm sure done rounds and all that kind of stuff in emergent situations. And of course it's his wife and you don't know how people would react, but the way he react is a hundred percent the opposite of how I would think he should react. You never right. know what people are going to do, but this is so polar opposite that it's, it's shocking. While the paramedics were en route, Christy and Doug returned to help Martin. So Doug and Martin were able to get Michelle out of the tub and Martin began CPR and mouth to mouth, but Bystanders said that Martin made a very feeble attempt at this resuscitation, and they never actually saw Michelle's chest rising and falling as it would if Martin was really performing CPR on her. So really, as we just said, Martin is a doctor. He definitely knows how to perform CPR and what to do in a life-threatening emergency. So the fact that this whole thing has been an ordeal is really very suspicious, Paramedics soon arrived at the home and took over the CPR. When they arrived, the bathtub had been drained, but it was still wet inside, and Michelle was laying on the ground partially dressed. 
As the paramedics worked on Michelle, Martin walked around the house yelling, quote, why did you do this? All because of a stupid surgery? End quote. As the first responders performed CPR, Michelle regurgitated about three to four cups of fluid and then another three cups later. This is, of course, really interesting to note because if Martin had been performing CPR wholeheartedly or really even half-buttly, that liquid would have already come out just by sheer force of doing CPR. So Michelle was rushed to the hospital and more efforts were made to revive her. But after 45 minutes, the doctor stopped all efforts. Martin, though, offered the doctor $10,000 to keep trying, but Michelle was pronounced dead at 1.03 p.m. That number, for some reason, bugs me. It's kind of insulting to the whole situation. So the horrifying news began to make its way around to all the McNeil children. When Alexis, who was the medical student that lived in Nevada, got the news, she was completely blindsided. She had just spoken to her mother hours prior, and everything was really fine. She immediately left and went back to Utah to be with her family. When Alexis arrived, she noticed that Michelle's room had been cleaned out and that her medications were missing. When she asked Martin where they were, he told her that the police must have taken them. Alexis also found the bathroom rug, a pile of wet towels and clothing, and Michelle's belongings in the garage of the home. It was immediately assumed by police and medical personnel that Michelle's death was accidental, and so there was no investigation into her death. But the results of Michelle's autopsy raised more questions for Michelle's children. We are going to talk all about the results of the autopsy report after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. As parents, we have to make a lot of decisions, and not all of those are easy to make. But choosing a company to create a trust or will doesn't have to be one of them. Trustandwill.com makes it easy to create your trust or will-based estate plan. And if you're like me and you aren't sure what you need or how to make it, that's okay because Trust and Will provides an easy-to-use website that literally guides you through the process every step of the way. Trust and Will takes just 15 minutes to finish an online will or trust starting at $69, plus free printing and shipping of your documents in beautiful folders to keep your documents safe. Plus, all wills and trusts include power of attorney and important health documents. Like all parents, my biggest concern is having my kids cared for in case something would ever happen. So it was a huge weight off my shoulders to complete this process and have something in place just in case. I also appreciated that since my husband and I have different wishes in certain healthcare situations for ourselves, we were able to specify what we want and no one would ever have to guess on our behalf. Visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. Again, visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. We all approach life a little differently, but if you're like me, sometimes starting something new is the hardest part, and that's exactly how it felt when I started Noom. I knew I wanted to eat better and take better care of myself, but I honestly was afraid to start and fail. Luckily, Noom is different than other plans because it's not a diet, it's a healthy and easy stick-to way of life, and Noom offers you support every step of the way, So no matter what your goals are, your Noom specialist and Noom community is there, cheering you on to help you reach those goals. Keeping track of my food on Noom's easy-to-use app means I'm seeing patterns in what I'm eating. The older I get, the more food affects how I feel, so I've really begun to notice links between what I'm eating and things like getting extremely tired and being just miserably bloated. Seeing this for myself, I'm able to adjust and cut some foods just because I know I'll feel better. That's a new thing for me because Noom is teaching me how to make decisions for myself, not just following a strict plan where as soon as I go off of it, it's a total free-for-all. My goal working with Noom is just that, to feel better and to make better decisions for myself and my health. Noom just asks that you spend 10 minutes a day by using your Noom app. I find that every time I look through my lessons, I learn just a little bit more. I really love how encouraging the Noom app is. Even when you feel like you didn't do as great as you meant to do that day, Noom just encourages you to keep going, which is exactly what I need in a program. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at noomnoom.com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we started getting into some of the strange things that occurred in the days and weeks following the death of Michelle McNeil. Unbeknownst to Martin's friends and family, he continued to have a relationship with Gypsy and was still speaking to her often when Michelle died. 
The day of Michelle's death, Gypsy and Martin exchanged 15 text messages and talked on the phone twice, once at 6.48 a.m. and once at 9.26 a.m. The following day, they exchanged 12 text messages. According to Rachel, who was the couple's oldest daughter, her father wanted an autopsy performed right away on Michelle's body because he allegedly didn't want anyone to think that he had killed her if the police decided to do an investigation. So that's like a really Whoa. weird thing to say. Not because, oh, I really want to know, you know, what exactly happened to your mom. No, it was because I don't want the police to think I did it. That's already just so inappropriate and weird. If that was my dad, I would be like, well, okay. Like that's not the number one reason I would think that you would want to get an autopsy done, but okay. You know, right. the first autopsy was performed the day after Michelle died on August 12th. The doctor found that Michelle died of natural cardiovascular disease. It's important to remember at this point that the doctor who performed the autopsy had no evidence to take into consideration since there was not an investigation going on. All he had to go on was the assumption that Michelle died of accidental causes. When the toxicology report came back, it showed that Michelle had Valium for anxiety, Percocet for pain, Phenergan and Ambien, which we all know is for sleep. So she had all of those in her system. Toxicologist Dr. Gary Dawson said that this combination of medications could have a range of effects on Michelle, anywhere from, quote, mild cognitive impairment all the way to unconsciousness. He went on to say, quote, it would be likely that the person would be obtunded or unable to respond constructively to their environment, end quote. And to make things even more confusing, the toxicology report showed that Michelle had ingested all of this medication within an hour of her death. So we mentioned earlier that when Michelle spoke to her daughter Alexis that morning, she said she was doing great. She'd stopped taking her medications and she was feeling well enough to get back to her daily tasks like picking her kids up from school. So really the question on Alexis and the other kids' minds, you know, was really why would she be taking all of this medicine and especially why would she take Ambien, which was for sleep, at nine o'clock in the morning? That doesn't really make any sense. Right. Michelle's funeral was held on April 14th at the Manila Stake Center located on the grounds of Mount Timpanogos Temple. Martin spoke at the funeral, but nothing he said was very meaningful, and he spoke very little about Michelle or her life, instead choosing words that mostly had to do with himself, including that it felt weird to be a bachelor again. At a luncheon that was following the funeral, Rachel even heard Martin joke around about being single. He was smiling and jovial, according to those who attended the funeral. And speaking of those in attendance, Gypsy also showed up to pay her respects. And she even sent Martin 22 text messages that day, including some that were sent at the time the funeral was going on. After Michelle's funeral, Martin refused to put a grave marker on Michelle's grave, though he did eventually put one up a year later. But he refused to let anyone else put up a marker of their choosing and instead made a marker out of concrete and put it on Michelle's grave. It was a hideous piece of concrete that was in the shape of a surfboard, and many who saw it called it an eyesore. A week after Michelle died, Martin returned to work donning a different wedding ring than the one he wore while he was married to Michelle. He told anyone who questioned it that it was an old ring that he just hadn't worn in a while. Since police weren't looking at him, Martin had plenty of time to spend carefully erasing all of his emails and internet searches. In late April or May, Martin started going to the temple to pray, specifically to pray about a new nanny for the children. This is where things get really insane. So Martin pretty much had this whole plan to hire Gypsy, his secret lover, to work as the family nanny. Martin lied to his older daughters and told them that he had met this woman named Jillian outside the temple and he had taken her number as a potential nanny prospect. Jillian, of course, was actually Gypsy. Although four women applied for the nanny position, Gypsy was the only one who Martin ever interviewed, and she was hired and she moved into the family's basement. However, once Gypsy moved in, she did nothing to help Martin with the kids. She did no nanny duties whatsoever. Martin even cooked the majority of the meals while Gypsy sat there gazing at him from across the room. They actually would even take off for days at a time together. I can't imagine being the older daughters like Alexis, who was away in college and, you know, her older, the siblings that were around her age, because that would right. just be so, so many things. It would just be so heartbreaking and so just like a betrayal. But then to have your younger siblings that are in the home 
you already don't know what's going on with your dad and what happened with your mom. And now he has this woman that he has been dating has moved into the basement and is now living there. And it's just, right. It just, there's nothing nothing you can do. do. Yeah. And you have these, these other younger kids that are right in the mix. At this point in time, Alexis was back in Utah, helping to take care of her younger siblings. And on May 23rd, She was sleeping in the master bedroom when she was actually awakened by Martin. And he was, what she said, was rubbing her buttocks with his hand inside of her pants and her underwear. And he was kissing her hand at the same time. So Alexis woke up and realized what was happening. And she smacked his hand away and got out of the bed and demanded to know what her dad was doing. So Martin apologized and said that he thought Alexis was Michelle and that this was an honest mistake. Later that day, he made a comment to Alexis that he was glad it happened to her and not one of the younger siblings because he could have gotten in trouble, which again is not the appropriate response for something like that, especially even if it was an honest mistake, as he said. Giant eye roll there, yeah. Right. You would still be, you wouldn't have a comment like that, like, oh, well, thankfully it was you and not your younger sibling. That's just not something that you would say to your daughter. That doesn't right. make, that's not. Yeah, you would just be horrified. Right, exactly. <laughs> and really like very apologetic and very, I mean, right. just, I don't even know. You wouldn't do that. That's for sure. I know that. That's for no. sure. So <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing we know is that's what you right. wouldn't do. So by June, the older McNeil girls had caught on that Gypsy wasn't a nanny at all and that she was actually some sort of girlfriend to their father, as we said. The young women confronted Martin about killing their mother and then moving the mistress into their home. And when they did that, Martin actually kicked them out. When the women refused to leave and insisted on taking custody of the younger siblings, Martin had them removed by the police and told them that he planned on giving custody of the younger kids to a family friend that none of them really even knew. Alexis struck back and told Martin that if he did not give her custody of the younger siblings, she would go to the police about the sexual assault. The following month, Martin proposed to Gypsy, and this is after Gypsy has already apparently been checking out wedding rings since just a few weeks after Michelle's death. So the couple actually got a marriage license, but they never did get married. Later in July, one of Martin's adopted daughters, Giselle, went to the Ukraine to visit her biological sister for the summer. Once she was there, Martin stopped communication with her, and she was actually stranded there for months before her family was able to get in touch with a translator that they had worked with during her adoption. Giselle's family was very poor, and Giselle herself had no money, of course, so she spent those months really living in squalor because she didn't have anything and had no way of contacting Martin. It's believed by many that Martin intended to abandon her and possibly steal her identity, which we are going to get a little bit more into uh, a little later in the story. On September 1st, 2007, Alexis called the police and reported the sexual abuse. As a result, Martin was charged with one count of forcible sexual abuse and one count of witness tampering. In April of 2008, those charges were dropped, but they were brought forth again on January 15, 2009. In the meantime, Alexis did get custody of the three adopted girls, and she also changed her last name to Summers, which was Michelle's maiden name. In November of 2007, Gypsy also filed a domestic violence complaint against Martin, which she later recanted and was dismissed, likely due to Martin's persuading. Also in 2007, Martin changed his will to give each of his children just $1, and he put the rest of his assets under Gypsy's false name of Jillian. Finally, in 2008, the Utah County Attorney's Office began looking into Michelle's death as a possible murder after Alexis and her Aunt Linda, who was Michelle's sister, kept begging police to look into it. The county's investigator, Doug Whitney, discovered that Martin and Gypsy had a plan to steal Giselle's identity. Giselle was the daughter that was in the Ukraine. This finding spurred police to keep digging into Martin, and the investigation would end up taking years. As you can imagine, Martin's relationship with each of his children had deteriorated quite a bit during this time after Michelle had died. In the summer of 2008, one of the older daughters went to Martin and told him that she was having a problem with drugs. Martin's suggestion to his daughter was that she take her own life. He is just the worst of the worst kind of person. Right? I am struggling to think of a worse person we've talked about recently because he he's just betraying every single person that trusts him. Every person in his life that's ever trusted him, he's managed to betray. 
So in September of 2008, a new medical examiner reviewed the original autopsy results. By this time, the doctor who had performed the original autopsy had passed away. The new medical examiner found nothing in the autopsy or toxicology report that suggested foul play and said that he would not amend Michelle's cause of death at that time. A third medical examiner reviewed Michelle's autopsy and found that it was, quote, within the reasonable degree of medical certainty, end quote, that Michelle had drowned due to the significant amount of water she inhaled. The doctor listed her cause of death as undetermined. In January of 2009, Martin was indicted in federal court on nine counts of identity theft, and Gypsy was indicted on 11 counts. It was learned then that the two of them had used Giselle's identity to make fake ID cards and open bank accounts under the name Jillian McNeil, allegedly Martin's new wife. The identity theft plot began right after Michelle was killed. Martin and Gypsy used her funeral date as their marriage date on official documents. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just could not be any grosser. So another fraud was that Martin deeded the McNeil house, which had actually been in Michelle's name, to himself while he acted as an attorney to Michelle. He pretended that he did this while she was still alive. I guess he must have altered dates and stuff that he had deeded the house to himself. Mm, craziness. So in March of 2009, Martin pleaded guilty to identity theft and was sentenced to four years in prison. In September of that year, he pleaded guilty to state forgery and fraud charges and was sentenced to three years in jail and six years of probation. Gypsy was also sentenced to 21 months in federal prison for her part in the identity theft, and she was forced to begin her sentence a month early because prosecutors believed that she had plans to take off and flee to Mexico. So Gypsy was also later charged with state fraud charges and sentenced to three years of probation. While Martin was serving his time in federal prison for forgery and identity theft, his son Damien overdosed on prescription drugs in January of 2010. His death was ruled a suicide. In March of 2011, Gypsy was released from prison and went back to Utah. 16 months later, Martin was also released and returned to his Pleasant Grove home. However, investigators had not stopped trying to put together a murder case against Martin, and in August of 2012, they felt like they finally had enough to charge him with first-degree murder and obstruction of justice. Actually, they brought these charges on him literally a month after he got out from serving his time for the other charges. So he was not yeah. he was not out of prison for very long. Good. So Martin's trial began on October 17th, 2013. The prosecution presented their theory that Martin killed Michelle to, quote, take up a new life with another woman. They alleged that he drugged Michelle with her post-surgery medication and either left her in the tub to drown or held her head underwater. Since Martin was a doctor, he knew what effect these medications would have, and he also knew that they would be hard to detect them in an autopsy. But Martin made a lot of mistakes on the day that Michelle died and in the days that followed, and some of his behavior was really concerning enough that others took note. We mentioned that Martin attended a safety fair the morning that Michelle was found dead. Well, according to the witnesses at the safety fair, he was actually acting belligerent and nervous. It was so obvious that an employee actually filed a complaint against him. While he was there, he was insistent that someone take a photo of him. So obviously to show proof that he was there. Right. There was also the strange issue of why Martin didn't perform CPR properly and appropriately on his wife, why he made it so complicated for the 911 operator to get his information, and why he wasted precious minutes by telling the neighbor that he needed a man's help instead of hers. Martin also gave numerous and different versions of how he found Michelle in the bathtub. He told paramedics that he found her hunched over the tub with her head inside, but that didn't really make much sense because if she was positioned like that, he wouldn't need any help getting her out of the tub. It would be an easy pull. Martin told other people that Michelle must have been preparing a bath and had fallen in. And he told others that Michelle passed out and just fell into the tub. He told one of his daughters that Michelle was found submerged in the tub with only her feet above the water. The people who were there, though, which were six-year-old Ada, as well as neighbors Christy and Doug, all said that Michelle was on her back and slumped down into the water. Another inconsistency was that Martin told Alexis that the police must have taken all the prescriptions out of the house, but he told his son Damien and his girlfriend that he didn't want the medications around and, quote, couldn't bear to look at them anymore. The prosecution said it was really almost a perfect murder, but Martin's erratic behavior on the day of Michelle's death and after was, quote, dripping with motive. 
When it was time for his defense, Martin's attorney told the jury that, yes, Martin was having an affair with Gypsy, but that did not mean he killed Michelle. The defense maintained that Michelle died of natural causes, alleging that she had a heart attack and fell headfirst into the full bathtub. They also used the photo of Martin from the safety fair to prove that Martin wasn't home at the time that Michelle died. Unfortunately for Martin, a lot of other incriminating testimony came out during his trial. As we mentioned, one of his previous lovers named Anna, who dated Martin before he met Gypsy, she came and testified in court. According to Anna, their relationship consisted of a lot of pillow talk, and Martin allegedly opened up to her about a number of past traumas and transgressions in his life. Martin shared the story about his brother's suicide with Anna, and he told her that he'd been the one to find his brother Rufus bleeding in the bathtub following an attempted suicide, and instead of calling for help, Martin said that he held his brother underwater until he drowned. Oh my gosh. Just awful. It's just, I, there's just no limits with him. I mean, right. he just, it doesn't even matter who it is, your own brother, your wife, it doesn't matter to him. It's, right. he doesn't have that human connection, I guess you would say. Like, I don't know. I don't even want to give him that because he's just a monster. Just terrible. So Martin allegedly told Anna that he knew how to make somebody look like they died of a heart attack without it being detected. So these are two things that she is testifying that kind of line up with exactly what happened to Martin's wife. So this is definitely interesting um, testimony for, for a trial. So there were also five jailhouse informants that testified in Martin's trial as well. The first one testified that Martin told him he had given Michelle some oxy and some sleeping pills, and then he got her in the tub and held her underwater. He allegedly told this informant that he killed Michelle because she was in the way. The second informant said that he asked Martin if the rumors were true that he'd murdered his wife, and Martin said no one could prove it. The third informant had a similar story. He said that Martin said he did not kill his wife, but that if he did, there was no evidence. That's like O.J. Simpson's book, If I Did It. Right. Like, why would you even say that? Yeah. The fourth informant testified that when he asked Martin how he killed his wife, Martin just said that she drowned. The fifth jail informant testified that Martin said he was getting away with murdering his wife and that he was glad she was dead. On November 9th, 2013, after deliberating for 11 hours, Martin was found guilty by the jury of murder and obstruction of justice. He was sentenced to 15 to life for murder and 1 to 15 years for obstruction. His first parole hearing was scheduled for 2052. A month after his conviction, Martin attempted suicide in prison with razors, but he was interrupted. The following year, in July of 2014, Martin went to trial for the sexual abuse charge brought on by his daughter Alexis. He was found guilty of forcible sexual abuse and sentenced to an additional 1 to 15 years in prison. On April 9, 2017, Martin McNeil was found dead in the prison yard of the Olympus facility. He was 60 years old. His death was ruled a suicide as he had used a hose and a natural gas line to kill himself in an area where there were no cameras that could see what he was doing. So also something weird to note was leading up to Michelle's death, Martin was telling people that he was either dying of cancer or multiple sclerosis. He would say different stories depending on who he was talking to. And so he would begin to wear wear like a medical boot around, a surgical boot, or using a cane. And in reality, he was fine. He wasn't dying. But it seems like there was a good chance he was trying to almost put it in people's heads ahead of time that he was physically unable to murder his wife, which is crazy the premeditation you have to have to be like, guess what? I'm sick now for a while, and now I have a cane. Like, that's a lot of work to put in to to come up with this kind of a, a story. He's just, I just, the story is so much. There's just so many people that got hurt in this story. And of course, Michelle losing her life and all of the kids. They had a ton of kids. And just how many people that he hurt. And who knows for how long, really? Like, this is all we know about. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel like there there wasn't a lot of information about his background and the things that he was doing leading up to this time in his life. But I would... Be very curious to hear from people who knew him from earlier times in his life just to kind of see, you know, what other things he did have in his past. Because it seems like there would definitely be more, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. 
Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and go on to last thing before we go? I am. Okay, so you suggested to me that we play this little (laughs) fact or fiction game, and I have a few facts and a few fictions, so we're going to, um, I guess, ask each other these things, and and then we're going to say, you're going to ask me, and I'm going to say if I think it's true or false, basically. Right, and then let us know at home. I like saying it like that. Let us know at home when you're listening. (laughs) Let us know how many you get right because I'm interested to see how you and I um, line up on this. Because even some of mine, I was like, I got to Google this to make sure this is actually true because I can't even believe it. I really hope that I am on the same page as you in that. (laughs) that I saw some of mine a few places. So that's what I mean by Googling. I was like, all right, this is good. (laughs) All right. Do you want to go first? No, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much. Okay. (laughs) Number one, my first one is, Mandy, a cloud can weigh more than 1 million pounds. Oh my gosh, Melissa, I can't even tell you. You have that, don't you? This is my very first one. (laughs) (laughs) So that should tell us both that we have no idea how things work because I was just as shocked as you. Well, I don't know if you were shocked. My daughter told me this a few weeks ago and I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. But then I forgot rain is a thing and rain is heavy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right? So it's I was true. Like, that's yeah. what's in a cloud, right? I don't know. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, so this is what <laughs> I, I wrote down here. I wrote that um a regular cumulus cloud has a water density of half a gram per cubic meter and a volume oh, sure, that of makes one sense. billion cubic meters. I don't know what any of that means. But when you calculate the cloud's total water content, you end up with 500 million grams of water or about 1.1 million pounds. So yeah, your average cloud weighs 1.1 million pounds, supposedly. Yeah, (laughs) we still don't (laughs) trust it. We both came up with it and neither one of us trust this system. Yeah, my daughter told me last week and I was like, excuse me, that does not, I can't believe, what are you learning in school? I cannot even believe this. I've never heard that. But yeah, it makes sense. Okay, Mandy, so then you do number two since we both had the same number one. Okay, Betty White is older than sliced bread. True. It is and, true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also know that because she came up a couple of times whenever I was like, I'm afraid that we know each other's facts because yeah. <laughs> we both looked up like weird fun facts. Okay. Mandy, sloths only poop once a week. They lose one third of their body weight each time and it's compared to the act of giving birth. What? <laughs> um, I'm going to say a third of your body weight a third a sloth uh, yeah this is a third of its body weight sloths are pretty big there's no way that's true i'm sorry mandy according to the <laughs> internet it is true <laughs> i hate that fact <laughs> i know it's so gross too i was like oh and then comparing it to giving birth i'm like every week to watch a sloth give birth to poo i just can't Ew. even <laughs> i know it's a lot to take in there you go okay all right mandy yours <laughs> melissa here is an old school one that you may know the answer to or you may not so 50 50 right (laughs) so is it true or false that it takes seven years for your body to digest a piece of gum that's false but that's what we thought was true and we were always told that is what we were always told but yes actually gum apparently the ingredients cannot be digested at all so your body just pushes it right along and gets rid of it as soon as possible (laughs) Imagine sloths. <laughs> I just feel like we're talking about poop a lot. <laughs> a lot of poop. Yeah, but I, don't you remember that? I remember one time swallowing gum because I used to do it all the time. And I remember swallowing it one time and being like, that's the last one. In seven years, I'll be free. Of yeah. All <laughs> <laughs> like it was a big day for me. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Such lies. Okay, Mandy, number three. The stage before frostbite is called frost nip. Um... No, <laughs> no. That is also true, man. Oh, my God. That is also true. <laughs> but it does sound like something I would make up, so it's perfect. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. This is my last one that I have. Okay. Hippos, like hippopotamus, you know, the animal. Wait, <laughs> did you really think you needed to explain that to me? <laughs> Although, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. Okay, so hippos um, have pink milk. True. True. It is true. Apparently, hippos secrete two different unique acids, I guess, are actually unique to hippos. And the names of the acids are named after hippopotamus, like 
that's like part of their name. I'm not going to say what they are because Please do. They're, Please do. they're acids. And so you can imagine that they're very sciencey terms. But I guess these two acids that hippos have make their milk pink. So I actually went and Googled hippo milk, which is oh. <laughs> That would have been the last thing I would have Googled. I didn't look up sloth poop. I was like, fine, I believe you. I just wanted to see the pink milk for myself. It is pink. It like is really pink. So that's a true, true fact. Oh, I don't like that fact at all. It makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) So I have two more, but I'll just give you, um, okay, I'll give you one because it has to do with our story last week, actually. Okay. So Mandy, Chris Kirkpatrick tried out for the Backstreet Boys, but ultimately Brian Luttrell was chosen instead. I think that's true, right? So it's kind of half true. I did do a tricky one there. Um, actually, AJ McLean, or however you say his last um, name, he was chosen. So I get a little true and a little false. But yeah, poor Chris Kirk- Kirkpatrick. But also not poor Chris yeah. Kirkpatrick. I mean, he's he, he did, did just fine. Well. Yeah, he, did, he yeah. did just fine. Yeah. So. so anyway, that was something different that we tried this week. Let us know how many you got right. Let us know if you liked it. If you didn't like it, we'll know because you won't tell us you liked it. Right. <laughs> we'll just assume Something worst. different to do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, that was the episode for this week. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.